But first up, we thought we'd start back in 1892 with one of the most notorious whodunits in American history. It was sort of the O.J. Simpson trial of its day in terms of the intensity of the press coverage. Newspapers from around the country sent special correspondents to cover it, in addition to having the local papers and the wire services. This is author and lawyer Kara Robertson. Many people traveled to New Bedford, which is the site of the trial, uh, in order to witness the, the proceedings in person, and police had to set up special barricades. People, it was said, you know, like to make a kind of a picnic day event out of it. The person on trial was a 32-year-old woman named Lizzie Borden. And the crime? Double homicide. Well, we know that uh, in the mid-morning of August 4th, 1892, which was a Thursday, uh, that the prosperous mill town of Fall River, Massachusetts, was the site of a grisly double murder. Andrew Borden, a prominent local businessman, and his second wife, Abby, were found hacked to death in their home near the city center. The murders were so violent that some speculated that Jack the Ripper had come to America. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was gruesome. Abby had been felled by 19 blows in an upstairs guest room, and about an hour and a half later, Andrew received 10 blows as he lay sleeping on the sitting room sofa. Well, first of all, you know, given the given the crime scene, people assumed that it was going to turn out to have been the the work of some murderous stranger who was obviously insane. There were two things that seemed to rule that out. The first was that the house was pretty well locked up, uh, except for a side door that had been in uh, in view of either the housekeeper or a neighbor for much of the morning. Um, and the second major issue with that theory was that the interval between the murders, the prosecution eventually called that the controlling issue of the case. So that would have meant that whoever killed Abby would have had to hide in the house for an hour and a half until Andrew came home to commit the second murder. So as a result, the police turned their attention to people inside the home, and there were only three possible suspects. The housekeeper, Bridget Sullivan, who had been seen washing windows outside at the time of Abby's murder. Andrew Borden's brother-in-law, who was uh, visiting overnight, but who was going to visit other relatives in the morning, so was absent from the house. And finally, Andrew's younger daughter, Lizzie. Lizzie Borden wasn't someone who fit the profile of a suspected murderess. She she seemed to tick all the boxes of uh, upper middle class respectability. But it was discovered that the uh, house was the site of what some people thought of as almost a cold war, that there was ill feeling between Andrew Borden's uh, adult daughters and his second wife. Um, it was also discovered that someone who was identified as Lizzie Borden, tried to buy prussic acid on the day before the murders. Poison rather than, you know, a hatchet fit the profile of a murderess.
So Lizzie is arrested and then her trial begins the following June, 1893. What was the prosecution's case against her? How did they deal with all of these sort of obvious yes and no components to the murder? The prosecution argued that she was the only person with uh, motive and opportunity to commit the murders, that there, there's really, based on the timetable, that, that there's no one else who could have done it. Uh, the prosecution pointed to the tension in the household uh, as a motive. It was hard for people to accept that that would be enough, particularly that kind of murder. Uh, and it should be noted that Lizzie Borden had no blood or any other kind of sign of disturbance on her when uh, she reported the murder of her father. Hmm. So the prosecution goes, in a sense, for the obvious argument that she makes sense as the person who did the murder. What does the defense say? The defense uh, essentially points to Lizzie Borden and says, you know, someone like this couldn't possibly have done it. They do a good job of casting doubt on the question of exclusive opportunity by pointing to strangers who might have been seen in the vicinity. Uh, And they point out that you can't see everyone at any time. So, I mean, it was at least theoretically possible that someone had been in the house. Uh, At the same time, their most potent piece of evidence was the image of Lizzie Borden herself. Mm. Was that she seemed genteel and middle class or even upper middle class and that she just didn't seem like the sort of person who could have done that. Yeah, she has this extraordinary self-possession. That's the that's the thing about her that everyone notes. And that's read, you know, in contradictory ways so that uh, the defense points to it, as do Lizzie Borden's many supporters, as a sign of, you know, inborn gentility, that this is this is really a sign of true American grit. Hmm. Uh, and that she's bearing up in a ladylike fashion under the strain of unjust suspicion. For those people who thought she was the killer, they saw it quite differently. You know, they saw they saw it as a sign of almost a masculine nerve. Hmm. The uh, Irish Catholic paper calls her the Sphinx of Coolness. Uh, and that same paper, the Irish Catholic um, Fall River Daily Globe says that uh, if you know a mill hand had been suspected or a domestic servant had been suspected, then that person would have been arrested without ceremony, and instead the police were you know pussyfooting around. Mm. And on the other side of the ledger, uh, the police and the prosecution received a lot of um, um, helpful suggestions about how it must have been this immigrant or that immigrant, or maybe it was some plot by the Pope. Okay, so this is an age when sensationalist news and and mass-marketed newspapers and magazines are really booming. So how did the press in that sort of new dramatic form maybe shape how people were responding to the trial? Yeah, it's it's a case that, you know, obviously dovetails well with the heyday of yellow journalism because there's so many horrifying, sensational details. The exhibits you know, which are quite gruesome, including the skulls of the victims are brought into the court and sketch artists give visual representations of uh, those things for the audience at home, as well as the prose portraits by the journalists. The audience, as well as the fellow journalists, become part of the story. It's something that, something that probably would be familiar to us, that, that the um, journalists pick out 
particularly good looking or odd looking people uh, and describe them and overhear conversations and relay those to the people at home who are, you know, eagerly awaiting for details that come via uh, updates throughout the day. There are uh, no women on the jury. Women weren't allowed to uh, serve on Massachusetts jury uh, juries until 1950. But there is a dedicated uh, section of the audience that's female. And many of the journalists refer to them as a kind of self-constituted second jury. And they're a lot more hostile than the actual jury. What was that supposed jury saying as opposed to, we're going to get back to in a moment, what the actual jury said? They seemed to think she was guilty. You know, and they hmm. viewed her. They viewed her as a you know woman who who had transgressed in this fundamental way, and were suspicious of the things that I think otherwise played quite well, which was the um, care that she devoted to her appearance before trial. It was noticed that she, um, if her hair had been mussed, you know, if the perfect curl had was missing, that she would fix it during the um, recesses of the trial. On June 20th, Lizzie Borden ends up being acquitted by that all-male jury. So how does that happen? How do they end up reaching that verdict? It's an unusually long trial for its era. You know, it's almost three weeks. Despite that, despite the, you know, the amount of evidence that's, that's presented by the prosecution, the jury's pretty much decided. They, they reach their verdict within 20 minutes. They just take a vote almost immediately upon entering the jury room. But they decide that, that that would be unseemly. So they, they delay delivering the jury, the, the verdict for a while, so that it looks like that they've been, been sort of reasonably deliberative. <laughs> wow. I mean, I should say that two of the most compelling pieces of evidence never reach the jury. The first is the uh, alleged attempt by Lizzie Borden of, of buying prussic acid. Mm. Um, and the second is the contradictory account of her own movements that come from her inquest testimony. There's a kind of technical legal reason why that's not admitted, um, but that has a lot to do with expectations about gender as well, particularly middle-class womanhood, that she's, uh, that essentially she's being entrapped by the police uh, and bullied. And it's also noted that her doctor has given her a prescription for something containing morphine, uh, and so that, you know, it's just no wonder she was all confused. Wow. The ways in which sort of assumptions about protecting her and suspecting her and assuming things about her and then making excuses for her, it's, it's an amazing bundle of things. Yeah. And I was struck by that, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer. So I was looking at, at the lawyer's strategy, you know, and trying to unpick whether are they making the, you know, whether they're trying to make these arguments because they know they'll be persuasive to the jury, or is this what they believe themselves? And it seems like a little bit of a, a mix because th they act very much like uh, paternal figures, or at least the, her defense lawyers mm -hmm. do. You know, she's 32 years old and she's spoken about as if she is a girl. I mean, that's, she's repeatedly called a young girl. Uh, but the prosecution doesn't challenge that, nor does it challenge other things that, that could have been quite useful. I mean, one of the most important pieces of uh, evidence or non-evidence, if you will, that's in Lizzie Borden's favor is the absence of blood. Uh, and no blood 
was found on Lizzie Borden or on any of her clothes. But there are two, um, you know, there are two things that are that you know that could explain that. One is that one is that there's a dress that she burned on the Sunday after the murders, on the theory that it had been stained with paint. Um, and the second is that there was a um, a pail of bloody cloths in the basement uh, that her doctor assured the police were menstrual cloths. Uh, and they may well have been, but uh, it's something that the prosecution just prefers not to mention either. Once again, gender playing a really interesting role here. Right. The defense gets to have it both ways because on the one hand, it's, you know, it's essentially kept out of the trial. So they can harp on the fact that, that there's no blood found on Lizzie Borton. But they also use the fact of what they refer to as her monthly illness to explain any oddities in her behavior or inconsistencies in her statements. Wow. So she's found, she's acquitted, she's found not guilty. How did the public respond to that? In the immediate aftermath of the trial, there's, there's you know, celebration at the site. This seems to be a verdict that's, that's you know, greeted with great enthusiasm by most people in the public. Locally, it's a lot more divisive. The same papers that criticized the police for, for dragging their feet on, uh, about arresting Lizzie Borden viewed this as just you know, yet another case of some, a member of the elite, a member of the elite getting away with murders. It was an extremely stratified mill town. Uh, enthusiasm uh, about the verdict cools pretty quickly. Um, so that Lizzie Borden, when she returns to her old life uh, and attends the church that had provided the bedrock of her support during the trial, um, finds herself surrounded by empty pews. And that pretty much sets the tone for the way the town treated her, or at least the, the part of the town that she aspired to join. So then what happens to her in the time after the trial? Well, one of the supposed motives for the murder was Lizzie Borden's dissatisfaction with the cramped family house. And after she's acquitted, she and her sister move from the cramped family house in the business district to what's effectively a McMansion uh, in the Hill District, which is the elite residential area in Fall River. Uh, and then she uh, lives it up. She starts to go to the theater in Boston and acts, you know, in a way that's not entirely consistent with her earlier behavior. She was really expected to go back and live down her notoriety. Mm -hmm. And instead, you know, she lived it up. Uh, and so she lives there with her sister for about 12 years. Uh, there's an argument and the sister moves out uh, and never speaks to her again. And so she lives in Fall River to the end of her days, but, you know, essentially alone. Okay, I'm going to ask you one last question, and I'm very curious about your answer. Who do you think killed Andrew and Abby Borden? Ah. <laughs> the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is a non-spoiler alert, so I, I don't solve the case, you know, in the book. I thought it was important not to, you know, that I think you lose credibility mm -hmm. when you... Um, and that what was important was to, you know, set out uh, the story as, as completely as possible based on the primary sources and, you know, let the evidence that points in a bunch of different directions sort of speak for itself. 
that said, I, you know, I think I'm sort of in the same position uh, as I was at the beginning, which is that, you know, it is difficult as a practical matter to understand how she could have killed both people and presented herself in between, in between the murders. And then again, very quickly after the second murder, you know, in perfect attire without any blood. Um, at the same time, it's, it seems almost impossible that, you know, anyone else could have done it and then eluded the two women who were in the house at the time. Hmm. So you end up right there. Um, <laughs> able to see both sides and, and sort of standing on that border. Yeah, I'm comfortable with the ambiguity mm-hmm. because I, I think there's something about this case that, that, you know, has a universality to it. I was interested in the specifics of it. You know, I very much wanted to talk about uh, Lizzie Borden's trial in its exact uh, social and cultural context. But at the same time, there's there's something about this particular mystery that, you know, I think tugs at us. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, not having a firm decision on it, uh, not having made a firm decision, I think, is useful and probably honest. Kara Robertson is the author of The Trial of Lizzie Borden. 